right, good to see you guys all out here today. And uh, those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, I'm the main teaching pastor here. We're working our way through uh, the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And why don't we just pray and then we'll, we'll just dive right into it. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come to church today and gather. Thank you for this family here at Southland. I love being a part of this family. Uh, we love these people and the friendships and the experience of you that we're having more and more and the answers to prayer. It's just, it's a real blessing. And so I thank you for this place. I thank you for what you're doing here. And I thank you for this message, the Sermon on the Mount, which is just so essential just for the heart and for our lives and for following you. And I pray that we would meet with you here this morning as we go through this. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're, uh, last week we finished uh, Matthew chapter 5, which is the biggest uh, chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. Today we start Matthew chapter 6, the first four verses. We're just taking uh, chunk after chunk after chunk. Most of you in your Bibles, we're just following along with, there's little headings that break up the chapters. We're just following along piece by piece through those. And you'll notice now there's a bit of a shift as we go into chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or chapter 6 of Matthew. It's the second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, but as we, as we go into this chapter, there's a little bit of a shift in Matthew chapter 5. You know, we've been talking for the last couple of months about being salt and light. And Jesus has this big vision. The Sermon on the Mount is all about being salt and light. And in Matthew chapter 5, he develops that in this whole, uh, in this fiery message about righteousness and holiness and integrity and keeping your, your promises and turning the other cheek and sexual purity and staying in your marriages and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus says, you've got to be salt and light. And this is what it means to be salt and light. And in chapter 5, he just develops this whole thing of holiness and the absolute importance of holiness and righteousness uh, in our lives, that be, our behavior matters, okay? Now in chapter 6, you're going to see a little bit of a shift. We're still on salt and light. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about being salt and light, okay? But in chapter 5, the biggest portion, it's holy, holy, holy. It's just righteous living, okay? Righteous living and love people, okay? In chapter 6 now, we're going to see a little shift now. And what you're going to see now is Jesus is tackling it from a different angle. And what he's doing now is he's going to speak about a temptation for those people who bought into chapter 5. For those people who bought into holy living, righteous living, Jesus, that's what we want. Now in chapter 6, Jesus comes at it and he says, but watch out, there's a temptation. If you go hard after the chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, then in chapter 6, I just want to warn you about a temptation that can come when you're trying to live a holy life. Okay? And so we read in chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So in the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about you got to be righteous. And then now in the second chapter, he shifts a little bit. And he says, but be careful. When you're pursuing this life of righteousness, it also matters why you are pursuing the righteousness. See, there's two levels here in the Sermon on the Mount. There's two levels of righteousness. There's two levels of of wickedness that Jesus is speaking to in this message. In, a, in, in chapter 5, it's all about your outward behavior. It matters. Holiness matters. Righteousness matters. In chapter 6 now, he starts to talk about motives. Your motives also matter. So one level of, of wickedness is, you know, you just totally live in rebellion against God's laws. You cuss and swear and take advantage of people and commit sexual immorality. And that one's just, it's obviously bad and it's headed for judgment. And Jesus says, horrible. That's not good. God's angry at that. 
But then in the second part, he talks about this, where you can be this person who outwardly is a religious person, who outwardly follows these rules and doesn't look like this person over here who's cussing and swearing and taking advantage of everybody. But on the, and so outwardly you look good, but on the inside, hard-hearted, no love, puffed up, and proud. And Jesus says both are bad, but the problem is the first one's obvious. The first one's obvious to everyone. When you're living that lifestyle, it's obvious to yourself. It's obvious to everyone else. You're living in rebellion uh, towards God, okay? But the second one is sneaky. The second one's sneaky. Outwardly, you're living, you're, you're living by the commands, generally a respectable life, a religious life, but inwardly, you are deceived, and other people can be deceived. And so we see him there. He says, beware. That's why he says, beware. First chapter, you got to be righteous. But now second chapter, beware when you are practicing your righteousness as to why you are doing this. Beware that you're not doing it in order to be seen by men. Now, you remember last week, last week we talked a little bit about media. Just a, just a little example here. Second half of the, of the message, we talked about be perfect, right? As your Father in heaven is perfect. And we saw this just glorious truth from Jesus. This calling that we are to be perfect like the Father is perfect. Not perfect in the sense of no mistakes, right? Amen. Jesus is not saying we're not allowed to make mistakes. He is so forgiving and gracious. It's wonderful. But we saw how he's calling us to live by the Father's perfect ways, right? And in the second half of the message, we talked then about how it's impossible to live according to the Father's perfect ways if your mind is completely consumed by media and culture in the ways of this world, right? And so you see, now, so you see, so someone starts to obey. So the Holy Spirit speaks to you. It, like in last week's message, we look at this, be perfect like your Father is perfect. So you come out of that and you say, okay, I want to live righteous, right? Chapter 5. I want to do chapter 5, living holy, living righteous. I want to fill my mind with good stuff. I want to meditate on the word. And so you, you start to, you know, you prayerfully put, a, put boundaries on your media intake and you start to live like that. And now in chapter 6, Jesus says, and now I also want you to watch out on your motives because isn't it easy then, in the next moment, you start to obey Jesus and somehow in human nature, obedience is so good, but we can twist obedience into something bad, Right? And so you take this thing which is good. I want to I be perfect like the Father is perfect. I want to live by his perfect ways. I want to keep my mind pure. And so, but then it's easy to get to this place where now you're doing it in a way to show off to others, right? And it becomes this thing of like, oh, you watch movies, eh? Hmm. We don't watch movies at our house. And it becomes this judgmental thing, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is also, why do you do it? Not just... You're going hard after God and you're obeying, but why do you do it? Our motives are so important. Are we doing it because we want to judge others? We want to put others down? We want to puff ourselves up? We want to look good? Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Now, motives are such a tricky thing, okay? The fact of the matter is, none of us here has, has 100% pure motives. We won't until the resurrection. I have impure motives. Even as I preach here, there's no way I can figure out at all times of my life, am I 100% pure in my motives, Okay? I'm hopefully growing in it through prayer, through being with Jesus. I'm growing. I'm, I'm allowing the Lord to refine my, my motives. So the point of this passage is not that we're all going to go home and be neurotic and worried about, are my motives right? Are my motives wrong? Okay? But the point is just to be aware of this. Beware of motives that are wrong. And one of the ways you know, here's one of the sure ways you know if your motives in doing something right, if your motives are not good. Okay? I'll tell you how you know the moment you start judging and comparing yourself to others. Isn't that true? So Jesus spoke to you, maybe last week in a message or during the week now you were praying about, Jesus spoke to you about your media intake. Okay? 
well, that's a good thing. You start to obey. You're purifying. You're going after Jesus in prayer more. Your mind's in a better place. You just find the Holy Spirit, the fruit in your life more. But the moment, the red flag comes, the moment now you expect everybody else to do what Jesus showed you to do. And now you're puffing yourself up. I'm better than you. Oh, you're not. Oh, you still do that. I don't do that anymore. You still watch that. I don't watch that anymore. And you start to puff yourself up. The moment there's judgment, that is a clear sign. You're not doing this anymore from a, out, of a, out of a pursuit of Jesus and love for him and love for his ways. You're doing this in a comparing way. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before people. It's huge, okay? It's huge. Well, let's keep reading. We come now in verse 2 to the, what, the, what the main point of what this passage uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 is about, and it's about giving, okay? And so he says in verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, okay? And, and notice it's not if, okay? And he's going to do this twice in this passage. When you give to the needy, okay? There's no ifs about this. We are going to give to the needy. When you're, and he's speaking to his followers here. He doesn't, doesn't make a distinction here. He's speaking to the masses. This is, you know, at the beginning of his ministry, he's got masses of people who are coming to him. They've been coming for healing. They've been coming for help. And, and he does not split up between them and say, those of you who are wealthy, you're going to give to the needy. And those of you who are poor, don't worry about this part of the sermon. No, no, he just says to everybody, blanket, when you give to the needy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to be a giver. When you give to the needy, he says, and then we come back to the motivation thing again. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. So the Pharisees and religious leaders, they were those people who are, were on that level of, they were obeying the commands of God uh, generally. They were living respectable lives outwardly. But everything they did, they had somehow perverted the commands of God, which are wonderful and good. Like the commands of God are wonderful. To live with integrity is wonderful. To live with sexual purity is wonderful. These are wonderful commands that God has given us. To stay in your marriage and be faithful to your, to your wedding vows is wonderful. But they had taken these wonderful commands which are life and which give glory to God and they had turned them into this thing of making themselves look good. And so everything they did when they would give to the needy and when they would, when they would give to the temple, you know, they wouldn't just, you know, uh, uh, do, do their giving or whatever. They'd make a big deal of it. You know, they'd have, you know, exchange my $100 bill here for pennies and love this this huge bag of money and then dump it into the offering plate okay they wanted to make a huge deal of it and so jesus says it's not enough to just practice the obedience it's also why you practice the obedience so don't be like the hypocrites who sound a trumpet before them and then he goes on to say truly i say to you they have received their reward but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's lots here about giving, about reward, about motivation. We're going to look at all of that today. But I want to just, we have to park here for a little bit on, do not let your left hand know, right, what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, okay? And so we just have to, we have to deal with the text. Is Jesus saying that all of our giving, 100% of the time, must always absolutely be totally secret? Because many Christians have taken these passages. Remember, and we've seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches passionately. I love it. I can hardly wait till we get to see him in person and hear him in person. 
Okay, this, the whole message is a fiery message. And we saw him before yeah, in chapter 5 preaching about gouging out your eyes and cutting off hands. And he's just all out, okay? He's all out in this preaching, okay? And so we've seen how people can fixate on a single verse and make, take it to an extreme where they, they practice kind of a reverse form of legalism where they become legalistic about this thing. And I've seen people, many people do that with this verse where they then assume all giving, all the time, must always be completely secret or it's automatically sinful and proud. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Okay? Because if that is what he's saying, then we are all sinning badly by passing the collection plate around during offering time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, other things, lots of, lots of things. How about, uh, some of you no doubt have heard, how many of you have heard of the ice bucket challenge? That's like the big thing right now. Okay? The ice bucket challenge, for those of you who don't know, it's been going around, I don't know, last month or two months. It's been going around for a while. It's super popular right now, all across North America. And basically, celebrities, athletes, regular people, politicians, people uh, videotape themselves dumping buckets of cold water on their heads to raise money for uh, ALS, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, okay? And, and, you know, thousands of people have done this. They've raised, uh, I, I looked it up the other morning, and they've raised through this, you know, and then you challenge people. So you dump a, a bucket of cold water on your head and then you, you send out a challenge to so-and-so needs to do this now or whatever. And then so-and-so has to either dump a bucket of cold water in their head or give money or whatever. They've raised 15 point some million dollars in the last few weeks. Uh, I don't know the exact amount of time, but the last few weeks they've, they've raised 15 point some million dollars. Normally in that same amount of time they raise one and a half million dollars. Okay, and lots of people laughing about having fun with it. And is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is that, is the ice bucket challenge wicked and evil, Right? I mean, if, if he's saying here, if, that, if we take this to be all public giving is always 100% of the time sinful and you must always do your giving secret, then all that kind of stuff is, is sinful. I mean, we've sinned in other ways than as this church as well. I mean, last, last year, we've done this a number of times, a few years ago as well, we gave an, a, a chunk of money from the church to the Bethesda Foundation for the hospital here in town. And the reason we did it, we didn't give it anonymously, we gave it from the church to the, the hospital because we wanted them to know that we love them, right? And last year as a church, we got, to, we, we got together and we decided we wanted to love the community in another way. We built that big playground over there in the soccer pitch, which is just, you know, was just covered with kids all summer long. And, we, and, we, and, you know, and dozens of you volunteered to help build it. And Marcus Reimer gave us the stuff for like just unbelievable uh, discount. And a church shipped in tens of thousands of dollars. We put up this playground. And, and then we, we put our name on it because we wanted to say, I love you to the community. Now, was that wrong? I mean, I mean uh, 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 what's the, how do you say I love you? you don't get, when you want to say I love you to someone, you don't do it anonymously. Like I sometimes give uh, my wife little treats or flowers. I'll, I'll surprise her with stuff for the express purpose of saying to her that I love her. Now, when I give her flowers like that or I give her a treat, I don't want her dad getting credit for what I did. <laughs> I don't want her friends here at church, I don't want her thinking, oh, the women in Selah just love me so much. And again, I don't want her thinking that. She can think that a different time. I didn't spend money so that she could feel loved by them. I did it so she could feel loved by me. Because I want her to know that I love her. So I don't, that would defeat the purpose to give that kind of stuff anonymously. I have to put my name on it and not be secret about it because I want to say I love you to her. Okay? And so, but is that wrong? Is you saying all giving must be in secret? You know, it's amazing. 
uh, the community t- totally received it. We had great feedback because we always want to show them that we're not just a church doing our own thing. We want to show Steinbeck and the surrounding eight areas. We want to show them that we're for them, that we love them, that we want to be a blessing in this community, okay? And for the most part, everybody was, was pumped about it. You know, I only heard one, ne- one negative thing. I, I got one email, and I actually felt sorry for this person, not from this church, outside in the community. But I actually had a person, after we put up the playground with the, with the sign, I had, I had one email out of the whole thing. I had one email, and someone wrote me with this exact verse. And I literally, I actually felt sorry for them because I thought to myself, if you can't be happy when you get a gift, when will you ever be happy? And so I graciously wrote them, and it was gracious, okay? That's not natural for me. I've prayed a lot about that, okay? <laughs> but I wrote back because if all we had, it's true, if all we had was Matthew 6, these verses here, if that's all we had, then we would have to say it's true. All giving should always be secret. But what do I keep telling you throughout the Sermon on the Mount series? We have to take the whole scripture, the whole testimony of scripture. Okay? You don't build a doctrine off of one verse or one little passage and then just build a whole thing on there. You have to take the whole testimony. And so I wrote back very graciously. Basically what I said is, I said, uh, you know, it, great, thank you for sending me your, your letter and your concerns and stuff, but you obviously didn't read the whole Sermon on the Mount. Because if you would have read one chapter earlier, you would have read this. And we've read this passage a whole bunch of times in this series. Matthew 5, 14 to 16 is the same sermon as Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. In other words, don't do your good deeds in secret. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In this passage, Jesus commands us to do, our, to do generosity and good deeds publicly, specifically so the whole world can see, so that they can give glory to Jesus. If we Christians do all good of our good works secretly, then people will not fall in love with Jesus. That's what he's saying here. His Jesus evangelism strategy for the world is based on a foundation of his followers being so filled with generosity and love and good works publicly that the world sees Jesus in us. Right? And so you say, well, is there a contradiction? See, this is why we don't, we take, we always take the whole testimony of Scripture. We always take the whole context of what's being said. In chapter 6, clearly Jesus isn't saying all giving must always 100% of the time be secret. Okay? And in chapter 5, he's clearly not saying that all giving must always, 100% of the time, be public. What we see here is it's a both and. We need to do both. As believers, we need to give joyfully and publicly and sacrificially for the glory of Jesus. And we also need to give privately and secretly out of our devotion to the Lord and our love for others. We need to do both. There's a place for public giving. There's a place for private giving. We need to be experts at both. And in chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking to this situation, he's not putting a blanket statement on never give publicly. He's speaking specifically to to the problem of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and their impure motives, which was they were giving not to give glory to God, but they were giving to give glory to themselves. Okay? So important. And then, but then, of course, people take it, and they, because some people give with a bad motive, they throw the baby out with the bathwater, and then they don't want to do any kind of public fun giving. No, giving with joy and sacrificially and as a group and publicly can be a wonderful thing for God, okay? No contradiction there 
whatsoever. So now we can get into the heart of this thing on giving. Now that we've looked at what Jesus is not saying, we can look at what he was saying and we go back there to chapter 6 and Jesus says, when you give to the needy. When you give to the needy. No distinction. He doesn't say, I'm only speaking to my rich followers now. He just says right across, right blanket, all of his followers. This is not a sidebar you know, issue of Christianity that some people are into this, some people are gifted in this, and certainly some people are more gifted than others in this. And there is a gift of giving and generosity, but this isn't a sidebar issue where some people do this and some are into this, some are gifted, and others are into other things. Not at all. Jesus' blanket to all of his followers says, when you give. See, the thing is, when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, and I'm going to take you, we're going to look at a couple of passages right now. When the Holy Spirit fills your heart and you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you will be a giver. There is no such thing as a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and they're not a giver. This is just an automatic outflowing of who Jesus is. It's his heart, and when his spirit is in you, you're a giver. So he doesn't even need to explain it. If you're rich, you'll be a giver, or if you're this, or if you're gifted, you'll be a giver. No, no, he just says, when you give, because he's a giver, and when he's in us, we'll be givers. I'll show you a couple of passages here. Acts chapter 2, because I want to show you something, because one of the sad things, and I speak about it often, and I'm just going to keep doing it because some of these things need to be repeated over and over and over until they get in our heads really deep. But in our culture, we've turned the Holy Spirit into this theoretical, theological concept. And I know that we've done that because if you ask someone, how do you know you're filled with the Holy Spirit, they will give you a theological answer. How do you know you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, because the Bible says, if I ask Jesus in my heart, then I have the Holy Spirit in me. That's how you know Actually, the Bible says you'll know someone has the Holy Spirit when they have the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you know someone has the Holy Spirit. You don't know someone has the Holy Spirit because of a theological, theoretical concept, as good as that is. And it's good to know the theory and the theology behind the Holy Spirit. Of course, I'm not against that. But my point is, in the Bible, when someone has the Holy Spirit, they don't know they have the Holy Spirit because of a theoretical verse that told them that they know it because they have the fruit of the spirit because the holy spirit is a real person with real power when he's in your life he makes you like jesus more and more and more the more you have him the more you know him and the more you walk with him the more you're like jesus and so when the holy spirit comes on you there's actually a difference in your life and i want to show you now acts chapter 2 i want to show you this generosity thing jesus says when you give When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be a giver. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. This is happening right after Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit was, when the Holy Spirit was originally first uh, came on on the church, on the early church. And that was with the whole tongues of fire and a rushing wind and speaking in many languages. This was the introduction of the Holy Spirit onto the church. And I want you to see, now we're going to read this, this set of passages, describes what happened to them after the Holy Spirit came on them, okay? So let's read that. Very, very instructional because we're going to see this, okay? So verse 42, after they got filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what they lived like, all right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So the Holy Spirit came on them. One of the first signs we see is the the radical generosity. They're sharing everything. 
Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They weren't miserable. And the Holy Spirit didn't come on them. And then, and then it's like, oh, giving's one of the things we have to do now. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit came on them and they gladly just began to share everything they had and selling things that they had in order to bless others and give to the needy, and they did it with glad and generous hearts. Why? Because they had the Holy Spirit in their hearts, and that's what the Holy Spirit is like. That's what Jesus is like. So when you have Jesus in your heart like that, that's what you're like. Glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that's not the only place it happened. We go two chapters later, Acts chapter 4. And what's happening here is the, is the religious leaders have called in the disciples. They've told them, stop preaching about Jesus or you're going to be in big trouble. Okay? So and they make some threats to them. So the disciples go back to the church. They have a prayer meeting. Let's see what happens. Okay? Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And when they'd heard it, these threats, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, look upon their threats. And I just skipped ahead a bit in the prayer. It's still in the prayer. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very important. Because now let's read what happens next. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. What's going to be the result? So they prayed for boldness. We're being threatened. We pray for boldness. The Holy Spirit comes on them, okay? And what's the first thing we see? Well, they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. So the first sign when the Holy Spirit is coming on your life, you're going to speak about Jesus because that's what the Holy Spirit does. You're going to speak about Him boldly. You're going to want to speak about Him to your friends. You're going to want to speak about Him to your family. The more you are filled with the Holy Spirit, because that's just what He does. He is in you to glorify Jesus, and He loves Jesus and the Father, and He's part of the Trinity. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will want to talk about Jesus. And yes, there's a gifting, and some are more gifted than others in evangelism and leading people to Christ, but you will, some, there will be a pressure inside of you. I want to talk about Jesus when the Holy Spirit is in you. And then what happens next? What, what else happens to them when they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Now the full number, next verse, of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Again, we saw it in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came on them. And by the way, you'll notice the Holy Spirit, we need to be filled with and refilled with him all the time. Many of these are the same people that were filled in Acts chapter 2. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some theoretical thing that only happens to you once and then no change ever comes in your life and you just say for the rest of your life that you're filled with him, but you're not. We need it, being filled with the Holy Spirit is being close to Jesus. It's diving in to the rivers of living water and being filled with his heart. Over and over again, we need to be renewed in Jesus and in his heart. And so what happens both times when, the whole, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit is radical generosity. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So there's the boldness thing again, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now the thing is, who told them to do that? Who told them to do that? 
I mean, yeah, they, were, they had the apostles teaching. No doubt the apostles talked about giving. There's something about teaching that stirs up in us the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do. No question about that. And I don't doubt that the apostles talked about, about uh, uh, giving in there. But in both Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, the point of the story isn't they got saved and then someone gave them a list of these are the things you need to do now because you're Christian. That's not what happened. They got filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit loves people and he's radically joyfully generous. So when they got filled with the Holy Spirit, nobody told them you have to be radically joyfully generous now. They just joyfully became that because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, again, as we teach often here in this church, Acts, and I could show you other passages, this is not saying that all of us need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in such a sudden or spectacular fashion as what they experience it there. Some people, it's, for many, it's, it's a slower thing. It's a growing in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have experiences where he douses us suddenly and it's a, it's, a, it's a more spectacular experience like some of these. Other times it's just a matter of walking with him and more and more of your life you give to him and you spend time in prayer and as you grow with him over months and years, you're growing in this and you're becoming more full of the Holy Spirit. But whether it's sudden or whether it's a slow growth in it, the result is the same. The more filled you are with the Holy Spirit, the more you are like Jesus and the more you have his heart and Jesus is a giver. So you can't be a Christian, a person whose life is supposed to be like a little Jesus who is reflecting Jesus. It's an oxymoron to say someone is a Christian, a Christian, and they're not a giver because Jesus is a giver. That's Jesus' heart. So when these people got filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not a sidebar of these are one of the things that you do as a Christian. Generosity and gratitude becomes just the, out, the basis, the environment, the heart of everything you do now because that's Jesus' heart and everything he does. That's Jesus' heart of generosity. Now, I know some people, again, this is not a miserable thing. I really want to stress this. I know sometimes in church, some people, when, when Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 get read out in public, some of you have a fear reaction. Some of you have a guilt reaction. Oh, is Jesus asking me to sell my house right now and move out on the street? Is Jesus asking us as a church to get rid of everything and all come and live together here in this auditorium today? And, and the answer is no, okay? I would need to be a lot more filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to put up with some of you like that, okay? <laughs> this is not, a, this is not so, so there's this guilt-fear reaction. The thing you have to understand about these stories, this is so important, so, so, so important. These stories are not talking about what they had to do, it's talking about what they wanted to do. This is not a story of legalism, of this is now what we all have to do exactly like this. No, 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 no. This is a story of when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, what they wanted to do. This is a joyful thing, not we have to go give. It's, oh, I want to give more. I want to help more people. Please, can I help more people? This is not a message of if you are not generous or if you struggle with generosity, or you do not give in a sacrificial manner, this is not a message of you are a disobedient sinner on your way to hell. This is a message of you're missing out on something. See, the, in the, the whole Christian faith, our entire faith, rests on an act of generosity. Is that not true? Our whole faith is, balances on not just an act of generosity, but the act of generosity. Is that not true? I mean, Jesus, did he just give to us? Is, is the Christian life, what we have received from him, 
did he just give to us out of his extras? Like, he's in heaven, and I've got so-and-so amount of power, and so-and-so amount of life, and so-and-so amount of, of wealth and treasures, and I don't need all of it, so here's some extra stuff, and I give that to humans. Is that the story of our faith? Is that the story of Jesus? No. Did Jesus give to us out of his extras? No. He left heaven. He left heaven. He took on flesh, and then what did he give us? Everything. He gave us his life. He gave us his life. He didn't give us out of his extras. He gave us himself. He, he couldn't have given us anymore. He gave us everything. Our whole faith rests on an act of generosity. An act of generosity. Matthew chapter 13. I talked about this a couple of months ago. I'm going to keep doing it. There's a, there's, Jesus tells a couple of parables in there, and many of us as Christians actually miss what he's saying in these parables. We actually miss... What he's saying, Matthew 13, 44 to 46 says this, the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is telling these parables, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now most of us, when we read this passage, we read this passage as Jesus is telling us, if you want to come into my kingdom, you must sell all you have. You must be willing to give up everything in your life in order to come and experience kingdom life. Now, on the one hand, that is actually a true application. That is, that is part of what these parables are about. Yes, part of coming into the kingdom of God is you have to be willing to leave everything else behind in order to enter the kingdom. That is true. Okay? But you have to see here, that is actually the secondary meaning of the, 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 this, these parables. That meaning comes out of the ultimate meaning, which is this. Jesus is not talking about us in these parables. He's talking about himself. He is talking about himself. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Who left heaven and sold everything? Paid with his own blood to buy himself a kingdom for eternity. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Who, had, who did that for us first? Yes, that is. Part of this, this parable is to call us to give up everything in order to enter into his kingdom. But Jesus is not asking us to do anything he didn't do for us first. The reason he can call us to give up everything in order to enter into his kingdom is because he first gave up everything in order to save us. He sold everything and put himself on a cross and died. And as a result of this, now this is the this is the absolute core of the Christian life. And when you encounter this truth, what happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you encounter this truth, now you haven't encountered this truth when you just hear it. Lots of apathetic, cold-hearted, miserly, miserable Christians know the truth that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and were bored by it. That's not encountering this truth. That's getting it in your head, and not, but not encountering it in your heart. When you encounter this truth, and the Holy Spirit opens up your heart to the fact that he gave everything, the reason you have hope for eternity, the reason you and I don't have to spend an eternity in hell is because he gave up everything to buy that for us. The reason you have hope in your marriage is because he gave up everything, and now you can go into the throne room of God and pray and see the power of God work in your relationship. The reason you have hope in that bondage in sin you're living in, that you're not doomed 
for the rest of your life to be in utter darkness is because he gave up everything so you could have his Holy Spirit and you could be set free. The reason you, we all have hope is because he gave up everything. When you encounter that, here's what's supposed to happen. The Holy Spirit comes in your life. When you encounter that truth, you cease to be bored with the cross and suddenly you are blown away by what Jesus has done for you and your heart melts with gratitude and now the rest of your Christian life is this, is one long act of turning around and gladly giving him everything back. That is what the Christian life is. He gave up everything. Now I spend the rest of my life, day after day, giving him everything back joyfully. That is what the Christian life is. So how could you be a Christian and not be generous? It's an oxymoron. It's impossible. Because that's what Christianity is. He gave everything. Now I give. The only appropriate response is I joyfully, thank you, Jesus, I'm safe from hell. Thank you, Jesus, I have hope in everything. And I gladly, time, money, family, all back to you, I give it to you. I give it all gladly back to you. And that's why I feel sorry for Christians who aren't joyful givers. You read in the book of Acts, they weren't miserable to give. They were glad to give. I feel sorry for Christians who don't have faith stories to tell their kids of times when they gave ridiculous amounts of money or time or service for God's kingdom because they wanted to. And they've never experienced the miraculous provision of God because they've never stepped out in faith, joyfully giving back to him for what he gave to us. I feel sorry for Christians who don't know that joy. I feel sorry for Christians who are hanging on to everything in this world, thinking those things will make them happy because they haven't realized that happiness is only found when you recognize what Jesus has done for you and you give it all back to him and you find joy that is unimaginable. You say, yeah, but I don't have enough wealth to be generous. I don't have enough wealth to be generous. I don't have, I mean, if it's all just bills, how can I give anything? If, if, if I'm just barely getting by myself, how, do I, how can I be generous if I don't have anything to give? Well, the thing you have to realize here today is there's so much more to giving than just money. Again, did Jesus give us money? Is that what he took on flesh and dumped money bags on the table for us? Is that what he gave us? He gave us his life. What he wants back is our lives. And that's where joy is found in giving him back our lives. There's more to giving and generosity in the Holy Spirit than just money. It includes money. I'm going to get to that in about five minutes. Some of you are going, woohoo, he's not going to talk about giving with money. Oh, I'll talk about giving with money. I wouldn't want to disappoint you on that. But there's so much more we can give. Time and presence. Let's talk, I mean, we could talk about a thousand things. We could talk about a thousand things within time and presence. One of the greatest plagues sweeping Western civilization right now, especially among elderly people, is loneliness. Loneliness. People are living longer than ever before, but they've got smaller families and they're moved far apart. And what's happening is Elderly people are spending the last, in some cases, decades of their lives shut into homes all by themselves. It's worse than any physical disease. Some of us here today, we have elderly grandparents. We have elder or elderly parents. How can you be a Christian? I'm not talking here about no one person can meet all of another person's loneliness needs. I'm not talking about here you take a person onto your back and you single-handedly feel this false guilt that you have to solve all of their loneliness needs. I'm not talking about that at all. 
What I'm talking about is how can you call yourself a Christian? Jesus gave everything for you. You have time for your favorite TV show. You have time to surf the internet, but you haven't seen elderly relatives that are shut up in a home for months or weeks. How is that Christ-like? How can we be said to have the Holy Spirit in us other than in some theoretical sense because there's no fruit there? Time and presence. I think today one of the things the Holy Spirit is calling us to is some of us need to make a commitment that actually that elderly parent or that elderly grandparent, I'm making a commitment that once a week, once a week, we have them in your home, an hour, can we not take one hour? Time and presence, it's not even our money. Many of the biggest needs this world have is, has nothing to do with our money, it has to do with our presence. We're only gonna spend all of our time and presence on ourselves. Jesus gave us his time and presence, didn't he? He didn't just sit up in heaven and throw down salvation. He came down and took on human flesh and lived among us for 33 years. He gave us time and presence. What about service? What about service? You know, we saw that video there for Four Winds before. and Tremendous. I mean, I, I can hardly wait till we can start showing some of the participants, but we don't want to show people right when they're in the program or one week afterwards. But tremendous things are happening in these people's lives. Why is stuff happening in their lives? Is it because of money? Well, money made it possible to build a home. Amen. Money makes it possible to pay some of the staffing. But is it money that's changing their lives? I'll tell you what's changing their lives. It's not a course either. You know what we've discovered? Ha! It's all over the Bible. You know what what actually people need in order to change? Relationships. You teach them a course. You put them on a retreat. Great, awesome stuff. They need that learning. They need the retreats. And two months later, they're back with their old friends and they're back in their old ways of life. You know what people need in order to change? They need good people around them to love them, pull them into their families and disciple them. We've got lots of people here at this church that are volunteers, mentors for Four Winds. They meet with people and, and, and they help them with their finances and they help them with their various a- aspects of their life. And they don't just throw a tape at them, listen to this tape and your finances will be fixed. They walk with them for months and months and months and become friends with them and help them learn how to use their money over time in, re- in the security of a relationship. You're willing to give time and presence, service? I think of early years, up to 500 kids from newborns to four years old. Every week. Right now, we've got hundreds of them out in those rooms. Some of you, you want to stay as far away from those rooms as you possibly can. <laughs> and it's a thankless job. You know, a three-year-old doesn't say, thanks, my life's radically changing, Mr. Penner or Mrs. Friesen, thanks to your working with me every Sunday. They don't say thank you. And the babies burp and do other things, unspeakable things that. <laughs> there's no thank you. Then you realize Jesus came down, took on flesh, and he gave us everything. And we don't have time, take an hour and a half or two hours every week to go and hold some babies, love some babies. For some of them, we got foster kids here, we got different kids here, struggling families. You take care of their kid, you're actually allowing their parents to get ministered to, which is going to help that kid later on. You hold that kid. Some of those kids, that's the most love they're going to get all week. Some of them are desperate for a smile. Some of them are desperate to be prayed over. I don't have time for that. I got time for all kinds of other things. You know what Jesus said? Matthew 10, 42. Matthew 10, 42, he said this. 
And whoever gives one of the, these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you want to be rich in heaven? This is what the Christian life is. Oh, I don't know my gifting. I don't know my calling. You don't need to know your gifting and calling. You'll figure it out if you just start serving already. Pick up a baby. Give some time and presence to some young adult who just needs to be invited into a real family and get something that they never had growing up. And they just need someone to love them. And if someone will love them for a few years, they will have their lives radically turned around. But are there any Christians out there who will meet the need with time and presence and service? Jesus came down and gave us everything. We turn around, we gladly give him everything back. Happy to serve you, Jesus. How could I even think of spending my entire life on myself in light of what he has done for us? Time and presence and service, but of course it also includes money. It also includes money. How could we dare in light of what Jesus has done for us, keep all of our money for ourselves. Whoever tries to keep his life in this world will lose it, Jesus said. But whoever loses his life, maybe we should put money in there, whoever loses his money for my sake will find true life. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the Christians in Macedonia and what a thrilling challenge we find in the example of these Macedonian Christians. 2 Corinthians 8 says this. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, he's writing to the Corinthian Christians now, about the Macedonian Christians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. God, just stop right there. When do you see those two extremes in a sentence? Ever. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, that's the Holy Spirit. These people aren't playing a game. They're not just playing a religion and going to church. These people have the Holy Spirit in them. In their extreme test of affliction, they had an abundance of joy. Well, we're going to find more extremes here. And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. When have you ever seen that? In their extreme poverty, this is the Holy Spirit. When you encounter what Jesus has done for you, your extreme poverty on the one hand can overflow in a wealth, wealth of generosity on their part. A wealth. People say, I don't have enough money. Do you know 99.9% of us here today are far more wealthy than those Macedonians were? Far more. Some of us here even today think of ourselves as wealthy. Many of us here today might even think of ourselves as generous. Because, and why do we think of ourselves generous? Because we give all the time and we give a lot. And maybe the numbers are big. Maybe the numbers are big. But have we given like these Macedonians? Let's keep reading because you're going to see some other stuff here. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. I want you first to notice, first of all, they're of their own accord. Nobody had to tell them, you have to give. Nobody had to tell them that. Because when you have the Holy Spirit, you want to give of their own accord. They gave beyond their means. Now, again, we've got to take the whole testimony of Scripture. This is not about being stupid. This is not about giving so much that you go into debt. 
This is not about giving so much that you do not put away something for the future. I could show you many verses in Proverbs. This is not about we give away everything so we can also live in poverty. That doesn't make sense. But they gave beyond their means. This is what I'm talking about. Some of us here today, we feel generous because we write big checks. Whatever big check is for you. For some of you, you feel generous because you write out checks for hundreds of dollars. For some of you, you feel generous because you write out checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. But let me ask you something. Have you ever given beyond your means? By that I don't mean have you given away everything so you had to live in a cardboard box. By that I mean have you ever given to the place where it hurt? Have you ever given? You might have wrote a big, written a big check, whatever a big is for you. You might have written a big check. But have you ever given so that you couldn't get something you wanted? Have you ever given so much that you said, I guess we won't be able to get the couches this year? Have you ever given so much that you said, I won't be able to go and do that this year? Have you ever given so much that you said, well, I guess we won't be able to watch cable TV this year or whatever it is? Have you ever given beyond your means, which is to the point that it actually cost you something? Because Jesus did not give to us out of his excess and you cannot know Holy Spirit fantastic joy and faith stories if you only give out of the cream on the top. This is not about legalism. This is not about giving away everything and living in a cardboard box. But do you live that place where you can really experience God, which is, have you ever given beyond your means to the place where it actually cost you something? Because if you haven't, it doesn't matter how big the checks are you've been writing, you're not playing the same game as these Macedonian Christians. We won't be standing in the same room with them when it comes to rewards in heaven. It doesn't matter how big the check is. These people had something that many of us don't. A revelation of God's goodness that caused them to turn around and joyfully give back. In fact, you read in the next verse here, I love this, verse 4, begging us. Like, I love this. You have to give. No, 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 no. Begging us earnestly. I can just picture Paul. Guys, stop. It's too much. You're, you, oh, you're, you're hurting yourselves. Stop giving. And they're begging, please, please, Paul, please let us give more. How many of us have gone into prayer recently or ever and said, Jesus, please, can I give more? I want to give more. I want to give more. Because I am in awe of how much you have given to me. And out of gratitude, your entire Christian life is joyfully thrown back to Jesus. We go back and we finish with the Sermon on the Mount again. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will not if, maybe, will reward you. Now, some preachers teach that as if you give, God gives you back more money. And that is gross. That is a diseased, sick teaching. We don't give so we can get more money. That would, that would pervert the purpose of I'm gra- grateful I give back to Jesus everything back. Sometimes he does give us back money. I have stories like that where I've given in faith and just said, Lord, I want to give to you and I've given to him. He's actually dumped back on me more than I gave. And I'm like, I'm trying to give to you. And you just can't outgive God. 
But he doesn't promise to give you back more money, but he does promise to reward you, and what he rewards you with usually is so much better than money. There's the eternal rewards. There's gladness of heart. Some of you have never known the gladness of heart of recklessly throwing yourself into Jesus' arms and saying, I give you everything. There's a gladness of heart. There's a sense of his presence. There's the faith stories you get to share with your kids. He will reward you. He will reward you. When you joyfully give to him out of gratitude, your life will not end up poorer or worse for it. He will reward you. So I want to finish with the weekly challenge. I don't have lots of time to sit on this, but I don't want to leave a message like this that we just get motivated, we get pumped up in our hearts, but we don't do anything about it. And as always, we'll email this out and put it on Facebook and all that sort of stuff, but I want to challenge you guys this week. Two big things. First of all, our motivation for giving in the Christian life is to encounter the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And so the first place we have to start is with gratitude. I would challenge you over the course of this week to prayerfully make a list of 25 things. Big and small, old and recent, that the Lord has done for you. You know, the more you meditate, I've actually been learning this truth this summer. I have been growing in gratitude. It's been the most wonderful thing. I just, I love gratitude right now. It's all I can think about. My devotions are mostly all about gratitude day after day these days. And I'm not sick of it. Because the more I focus on what Jesus has done for me, the more my faith is built, the more I sense his presence, the more trust I have, it, the more joy I have. It's wonderful. And I would challenge you this week, every one of you this week, to make a list of 25 things. Do some big ones. Do some small ones. Do some recent ones. Do some far back ones. How has the Lord blessed you? How has he answered your prayers? How has he worked in your life? How has he changed things in your marriage, in your spouse, in your kids, in your workplace? How has he worked in your life? And spend time this week meditating on that because as you encounter the truth of how good he is to you, that's where the, that's where the Christian life comes out of. Out of stunning gratitude, we turn back and we give him everything and then in the part about giving back to God with joy and again you, you're not going to be able to write down all these words we'll send it out and those of you who don't get the weekly challenge email you can email the office here and we'll give it to you but I would just I just want to talk through this just briefly so to challenge you to do this give back to God with joy I would challenge you this week to prayerfully out of your gratitude say Jesus time and presence and you, you can go anywhere with that. You can go anywhere from there. There's lots of ways. I give you one thing just to guide you a little bit. Is there an elderly person in your family that you need to commit once a week? I'm going to put an hour in or I'm going to have them over, whatever it is. But I'm, I'm, I'm not going to leave this person alone because I have the love of Jesus in me. I'm, I can't carry them all by myself, but I can commit every week to doing something. Service. Don't wait. Too many Christians Wait till they find out their calling and their gifting. That's not in the Bible. I'm, what are you doing? Nothing, I'm waiting to figure it out. Oh, Jesus, you give me everything. I'm gonna hold babies for the rest of my life or until you show me something else. I'll do something. I'll mentor people in four months. I'll lead here. I mean, there's so many places, but I cannot do nothing in light of what Jesus has done for me. And lastly, money. I would challenge you to pray about your money. So many people are concerned with 10%, not 10%. Tithing, is it a law? Is it not a law? There's all this fighting. And I just think, how can we as Christians, when Jesus has given us everything, be fighting about the minimum? 
How? When he gave us 100, would we be fighting about whether I have to give 10 or not? I want to give more than 10. I want to give everything. Jesus, what are you saying? He's given us a vision here at this church to reach thousands of kids through summer camps and ministries. He's given us a vision, church renewal and Africa and all this stuff, and, and we're going all out for it, and so many lives left to be changed in Four Winds housing. All oh, the needs are huge. Will you join us in this? You want to help some needy people? Jesus, can I give more? How can I give more? Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. We're going to sing a song of worship to Jesus right away. Lord Jesus, may we not walk away from your word to do nothing. We are committing here today, Jesus. You gave us everything. We do not want to go from here and lose ourselves in media and culture and forget about it and go back to our self-centered lives. We want to give back to you joyfully. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to grasp the immensity of what you did for us in giving us everything. And then transform us very practically into deeds and finances to become the most generous church family this country has ever seen. In your name we pray. Amen.